In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did was right in his own eyes. Pray with me, please. We thank you, Lord, for the enjoyment which we have experienced up to this point in the sermon, singing your praises and reflecting upon your greatness and hearing your word and praying and giving, hearing what you are doing in your church. It has been a delight to be with your people gathered here today. Now, as we turn our focus to the proclamation of the word, I would ask that we would continue to experience joy as we hear your voice in the Holy Scriptures. Be with me as I deliver this word today. I pray especially, Lord, that you would be with my physical strength and my voice. Enable me, Lord, to say the words clearly that need to be said and understood and helpful to the people. Lord, I pray that there would be a strong sense of your presence as we study what you have said in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We are studying the Old Testament book of Judges. Today we come to the best known of all the judges, and that is Samson, but not really. We are not studying Samson per se. We are studying his parents. We are studying his birth today. Uh, his story takes up four chapters. Today we're just going to cover one of them, and that is Judges chapter 13. As we think about the book of Judges as a whole, one thing that you need to know is that it is a repetitive book. There is a cycle of sin and suffering, supplication, salvation, and solace. And today, for the very last time, we are going to see that formula in the book of Judges with some modification. The book of Judges is a book that is rough. Samson's life is defined by sex and violence. However, we're not getting into Samson himself today. We get a reprieve from that because we're going to be studying his parents book of Judges is rhetorical. The events are arranged to suit the literary design of the author. They are not written chronologically as you would read a regular history book. And most importantly, the book of Judges is, is redemptive. It is the story of a good God who loves bad people. And he demonstrates over and over how he loves those people. So, for example, today we're going to begin studying the story of Samson. Uh, he was a saved man. We know that based upon Hebrews chapter 11. But boy, oh boy, his salvation was in no way merited by his own good works. Uh, God ridiculously shows mercy over and over in this book to bad people. Now, as we consider Samson... His story is a unique story in many ways when compared with the other judges. Usually what God will do with the judge is they will recruit, he will recruit a judge who will then in turn recruit an army and that army then will deliver Israel. Well, Samson didn't need an army. He himself was a one man wrecking crew. He was the army. Also, in every other instance, when God recruits a judge, the judge is already an adult. He is already ready to go, and he is immediately employed. In the case of Samson, he isn't even born yet when he is recruited. Uh, in fact, the entire message today is pretty much void of Samson himself. It is the story of how his birth is announced to his parents. And if you've not done so already, please turn to Judges chapter 13. So here is our approach today. It's not in any way clever. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the chapter verse by verse without any outline, and then I'm going to make comments as we go so as to clarify the text. And then once we have read the chapter in its entirety, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make four overarching observations from the chapter, and then I'm going to send you home with three practical truths. So let's get right to work. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the repetitive nature of the book. It is the cycle of the judges. However, there is 
one key element here which is missing, and that is that the people do not cry out for help. Uh, Maybe they have been oppressed for so long, they are used to it. Maybe they've even come to like being under Philistine rule, but they did evil. They were put under the hand of the Philistines. We have no record of them crying out to God for help. The people were doing what was right in their own eyes. This is the nature of sin. I don't care what God thinks. His opinion does not matter to me. His evaluation does not in any way alter my behavior. I am going to do what is right in my own eyes. And in this particular case, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The sight of the Lord was irrelevant to them. And so God disciplines them by bringing in the Philistines. As we move into chapter 13, verse 2, we now start to zero in on the parents of Samson. Verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. So uh, this place where Manoah and his wife lived was about 18 miles to the west of Jerusalem, right on the border of the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Judah. I find it interesting that it is mentioned twice that they have no children. And this story needs to be read in the context of the entire Bible with the infertility narratives in view. And there are many of them in the Bible. Uh, for some reason, God has given us many stories in the Bible about infertility. So, for example, Sarah and Abraham could not have children for the longest time. In fact, she doesn't have a baby until she is 90 years old. Rachel watched Leah. Uh, I'm sorry, we'll go to Rebecca. Rebecca was married for 20 years before she was able to have a child. Rachel watched Leah give birth time and time again before she gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. And then you have in the book of First Samuel, you have the story of Hannah, who was the wife of Elkanah. And he had a couple of wives and his other wife, Paniah, was taunting Hannah because she wasn't able to have children. You have in the book of Second Kings, the Shunammite woman who was a little bit older before she was able to have children. And the reason she was able to is because Elisha, the prophet, prayed for her. And then as you move into the New Testament, John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, didn't have any children for the longest time um, until they were elderly. Uh, in each of these cases, you need to note that God gives the older woman sons, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, Benjamin, Samuel, John the Baptist. Now please understand what these stories are not there for. They are not in the Bible as promises to you that eventually God is going to give you biological children. There is no such promise in the Bible. They are there in order to show us that God works in the face of human inability and human weakness, and he does so for his special purposes in redemptive history and for his glory. They are all unlikely births. Now, this all brings us to the most unlikely birth. It is not a story of infertility, but it is the story of a virgin giving birth to a son, and that is Mary giving birth to Jesus. Uh, Her virginity was not perpetual. She did not remain a virgin for the entirety of her life. She had many other children, and the names of most of those children are given to us in Mark chapter 6. But just like those other births, it is an unlikely birth, the most unlikely of births, and not just because it is an unlikely birth, but it is necessary that his father not be a son of Adam, but that his father be God. And so we have many stories in the Bible of infertility and unlikely births, which brings us to verse number three, number, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 13, verse three. And the angel of the Lord, that is Jesus, it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus known as a Christophany. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So notice once again, it is stated to her twice. 
that you can't have children, and that you are barren. This is the message that Jesus, the angel of the Lord, gives her. Verses 4 and 5. Here are her instructions. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Uh, your child is going to be unique. Um, he's going to begin to defeat the Philistines. He doesn't do it fully. That is left to David, but Samson begins the job. And notice he is going to be a Nazarite. What is a Nazarite? Here's the answer. We don't know. Here's what I can tell you about Nazarites. I can tell you what the qualifications are for being a Nazarite because they are spelled out in Numbers chapter 6, which we read already this morning. And the qualifications for a Nazarite include this. You can't drink wine, you can't have your hair cut, and you can't touch a dead body. So the Nazarite vow, which appears in Numbers chapter 6, is that if someone wants to take this vow, they can take this vow, but if they take it, it is voluntary and it is temporary. With Samson, his Nazarite vow is slightly modified in that it was not voluntary. It was decided for him, and it was decided for him before his birth, and it was not temporary. It was something that he had to live out for the entirety of his life. Now, interestingly, there is nothing said about the vow for Samson, which prohibited him from touching dead bodies. So it is sort of a modified Nazarite vow. Having said that, I can stand before you today and say, we have no idea whatsoever why someone would take a Nazarite vow. Zero. There is no explanation given in the Bible as to what the purpose of a Nazarite vow would serve. So we have to believe that Israel knew what that purpose was, but we don't. But no job description is given to us in the Bible, only the qualifications and the prohibitions. And, and notice, while the baby is in the, the womb of his mother, uh, she herself has to remain ceremonially clean in that she is not permitted to be drinking alcoholic beverages. In fact, it goes to the extent that she's not even allowed to be eating raisins. And, and, and she has to lay off of the alcohol. Why? Because the baby is in her. And this isn't part of the sermon today, but it does speak to the sanctity of human life about the connection between the mother and the baby. And so while the baby is in her womb, she is not allowed to be ceremonially unclean. She has to be ceremonially clean. Verses 6 and 7, notice what it says. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. I want you to notice, first of all, that she does not give her husband all of the information that the angel of the Lord gave her. We'll speak to that in just a minute. But she thinks that the person that is coming to her is slightly unusual, but she still thinks that it is a man. Kind of looks like an angel, but he is a man. And his visitation to her was not that he just popped out of nowhere or came down or was in a dream or a vision. It was just like a man who came from another town who in her mind was probably just a human prophet, striking nonetheless, but just a man who was giving her information. And she says to her husband, I don't, I didn't ask him too many questions. Uh, but at this point, what I want you to note is that she thinks that he, the angel of the Lord, is just a human prophet. Verses eight and nine. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again uh, to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. 
and God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field alone. She's there by herself. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. All right. Here's the first thing we're going to note about Manoah, and that is he is a godly man. We know that he is a godly man because the first thing he does is he prays. And what he prays is, Lord, could you please show me how to raise this child? Obviously, this child is unusual, seeing as how we are older. We have not had children yet. He is unusual in that God is announcing his birth. He's an unusual child. I I, I need to know how to raise the child. And Manoah here is to be commended because he's not like the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, who doubted the message of the angel. He says when the child is born, not if the child is born. All he really wants to know in his prayer is, what am I supposed to do? And boy, can I ever relate to this. I can remember exactly where I was sitting in our home in Columbia, South Carolina, when Anna emerged from our bathroom with a home pregnancy test, which she had purchased unbeknownst to me, and she told me that I was pregnant. (laughs) It all depends on how you say the, the, the sentence. Unfortunately, we do not edit these sermons. So she was pregnant. I just wanted to make sure you were paying attention. Yes. But even to this day, it makes me nervous because she walks out. She says she's going to have a baby. And if, if I were a good father, I would have rejoiced and I have said, Oh, this is wonderful. This is great news. The first thing that came out of my mouth was, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to be a father. I don't know what I am supposed to do. That was 32 years ago. I still don't know what to do. I don't know how to be a father. And that's what Manoah's reaction is. He doesn't know what he is supposed to do. Read, please, verses 10 and 11. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came and uh, came uh, to me the other day has appeared. So this is his second appearance. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. All right. She's by herself. The angel appears to her. She runs to get her husband. He comes back. Manoah has a question. Are you the one that was speaking to this woman the other day? And the angel of the Lord just says, I am. You're going to notice, and it's going to be one of the main themes of the day, that the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, gives very little information. He isn't too chatty. He only explains what they need to know and nothing else. Verse 12. And Manoah said, Now when, not if, but when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? That, that, that's, that's a fair question. All right. The child is special, but I want to know in what way is the child special? What is the child going to grow up to be? Can you tell me exactly what this boy is supposed to do and, and, and how he is supposed to do it? That is a very fair question. Here is the heart of our sermon today. It is the response of of the Lord in verses 13 and 14. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything any unclean thing, all that I commanded her, let her observe. Are you, are you following this? Like, are, you, are you getting the, the logic of this? Manoah sees Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, and says, I have a question for you. What is this child going to grow up to be? Can you tell me the mission of the child? And Jesus says this, make sure while your wife is pregnant, that she doesn't go to the liquor cabinet and make sure that the kid is the same. 
Like that. Wait, did you even hear the question? You're, you're answering a, 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 a question that I didn't even ask. I didn't ask you uh, uh, about what her prenatal care should be. I'm asking you, what is the child going to grow up to be? And Jesus says, make sure that the commandment that I gave you is kept, that the woman not be drinking alcohol and that this boy keep the Nazarite vow all of his life. Hmm. It's really interesting. We will come back to that. Verses 15 and 16. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, "Uh, let us detain you, please let us detain you, and prepare a young goat for you. Uh, In the ancient Near East, what you would do is when you would have a visitor, you would be hospitable and you would prepare a meal for them. That's what he's asking. And in verse 16, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. And here's the key peek behind the curtain where we recognize where all of these questions are coming from. It is based upon some things that Manoah does not know. There's a a, a parenthetical phrase at the end of verse 16, which says, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah says, let's eat. And Jesus says, I won't eat. However, here's what you can do. You can worship. You can offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, what is a burnt offering? We need to understand this in order to understand what is going on. Burnt offering probably is what Abel offered in Genesis 4. It is definitely what Noah offered after the flood. And what it is, it is an offering or sacrifice to the Lord in which the entire animal is offered except for the hide of the animal. It is burned, it is consumed. And according to Leviticus chapter 1 verse 9, it literally means, a burnt offering literally means, catch this because this is important, it means to ascend or to go up. And the picture of it is The offering is consumed on the altar. The smoke rises. It comes figuratively into the nostrils. We're speaking anthropomorphically. It comes into the nostrils of God, and God is pleased. That is what a burnt offering or a sacrifice of atonement is. And I will give you a spoiler alert. We're going to bring this back to the gospel later in the sermon. But for now... This is the instruction that the Lord gives to Manoah, but Manoah doesn't know who he's talking to yet, but he follows through and he does what the Lord asks, verses 17 and 18. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Here's Manoah's question. I want to honor you, and in order to honor you and remember you, I need to know what your name is. I mean, we're having a pretty important conversation here, and I don't even know your name. Who are you? I I want to honor you later. The baby's going to be born. Once again, he's clearly showing that he has faith in God. But just like naming a baby after someone else or just remembering the part that someone played for generations to come, you are an important person. And and I want you to be remembered. What is your name? Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you my name. The reason I'm not going to tell you is because it is wonderful. Jesus does not mean by this that my name literally is wonderful, that when I go into the bank to cash a check, I don't sign wonderful. That's not what he means. He means I have a wonderful name, but it is not wonderful in the sense that we think of wonderful. We use the word wonderful in a very loose way. So, for example, someone will give you a piece of cake, 
hummingbird cake, and you will say, how was that cake? And you will say, oh, it was wonderful. Well, I understand that in the vernacular, the way that language is used today, you can say that cake was wonderful. But technically, cake is not wonderful. It is excellent, it is delicious, but it is not wonderful. For by definition, that which is wonderful is full of wonder. It is full of the transcendent. It is full of the miraculous. It is wonder-working. And also the name name, the name name, doesn't mean name like Edwin Mark Moore, but name means the essence of who the person is. It is who they are, not what they are called. And so when Manoah says, what is your name? Could you, could you tell me the essence of who you are? Jesus says to him, I am not going to give you my name, the essence of who I am, because it, that is my name, the totality of my being, is full of wonder. In other words, you do not have the capacity to understand or to comprehend who I am. Many years ago, a chorus, I think the, the forerunner to all of the choruses that we sing now, was written by a lady by the name of Audrey Meyer. She wrote this in 1959, and the chorus, which is a really good chorus, is called His Name is Wonderful. Oh, we, we, we ought to sing that. It is a really good chorus. That is not what Jesus means here when he is speaking to Manoah. Um, uh, and by the way, when we say his name is wonderful, technically what we should be saying is his name is Wonderful Counselor, because it's not just wonderful, but he is the Wonderful Counselor from Isaiah 6. But I'm, I'm, I'm really splitting hairs here. But, but, but what I'm saying that you do need to understand is that he does not have the capacity to take in the wonder, end that word, full, F-U-L-L, using two L's, wonderful name of God. You, 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 you don't know what you're asking. Jesus is not being rude. This is a loving response because Manoah doesn't have the capacity to take it in. Verses 19 and 20. So what did Manoah do? Well, he's been told to make a burnt offering, and he does it. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, and he offered it on the rock to the Lord. Stop right there. He doesn't know that he's talking to the Lord, but... In faith, he is offering it to the Lord, so he is, in fact, offering it to the one that he is speaking to, but he doesn't know that that's who he's offering to. But in his heart, this is for the Lord. It is on the altar. It is on the rock. And who is the Lord? I love the rhetorical device that the, the author of Judges uses here, to the one who works wonders, the wonderful name of God. And Manoah and his wife were watching. That is, they're watching to see what happens. Verse 20. And when the flame went up, remember what burnt offering literally means according to Leviticus 1.9. It means the ascending of the flame or the smoke or the scent from the sacrifice to the Lord. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar... The angel of the Lord Jesus Christ went up in the flame of the altar. It starts to head up, and he starts to levitate. He goes up with it. He goes up in it. Now, when Manoah and his wife were watching, they fell on their faces to the ground. A couple of things that you have to notice here. First of all, there is a connection and Spoiler alert, the offering which was offered and the ascension of the flames and the smoke from the altar and the angel of the Lord being 
in or around on the altar and going up with the flames into heaven has gospel ramifications. There is a connection between the angel of the Lord and the offering and the offering going up and the offering being accepted. We'll get to that in a minute. The thing that I want you to see, though, is that as Manoah and his wife are watching this, and and Jesus, like in the ascension, is taken up into heaven, ye men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into the sky? It is something to behold when someone who you think is a man is taken up into the sky without ropes or cords. And it is not just the fact that he is able to levitate or be taken up into heaven. That is not what causes them to be fearful and fall on their faces. I believe that they are in awe because at this point they realize he's not a man, he's not a prophet, he's not just your run-of-the-mill angel, but he is God. And that is because they understood the nature of burnt offering as a sacrificial atonement meant to ascend or to be taken up. And when this man associates with that offering and is taken up, they realize that it is God. And they begin to respond the way that every person will respond when they are confronted with the person of God himself. And that is they will instinctively fall on their faces. Earlier this morning, we sang at Calvary. It starts off with these words. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. In other words, worship him. I'm not going to worship him. I, I, I don't even care about him. He has no impact upon me at all. But what happens as we move into the next verse, it says, and then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. There's a difference. There's something that changes in a person from when they do not see the glory of God and understand the gospel to when they do. And when they do start to see the glory of God in the gospel, the thing that instinctively happens is we start to see ourselves as both small and guilty. Isaiah is a really good preacher. In fact, he is the best of all of the preachers among the prophets. For five chapters, he's preaching great sermons. And then in chapter six, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And all of a sudden, he doesn't see himself as this great preacher, but he falls on his face and he says, woe is me for I am undone. Peter, he's living with Jesus, walking around with him every day. One night, Peter is fishing Jesus walks out and says, you catch anything? No, you catch anything. All right, Peter, throw the net on the other side. Luke chapter 5. Lord, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, you say so, I'll do it. Throws it on the other side, and the catch almost breaks the nets. And Peter falls before the Lord, and he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He now knows who he is dealing with. Peter, James, and John, the three disciples that were the closest to Jesus, living with him every day, again, just interacting normally and what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory is unveiled, and when his glory is unveiled, they fall as dead men. John, who was the closest of the closest to him, he was his best friend. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had seen all the miracles of Jesus. He knew Jesus most intimately, but yet when he sees the unveiled glory of Christ on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1, he falls on his face. You do not need to be told when to fall on your face when confronted with the glory of God. You will know instinctively. So Teresa and Jerome, they get, they get married yesterday. Boy, you know, whenever there's a wedding, I am a nervous wreck. And the reason that I am a nervous wreck, I try not to look like I'm a nervous wreck, but I am a nervous wreck because there is a time for everything, a time to arrive, a time to turn, a time to pivot, a time to pull out the ring, a time to do the vows, a time to sing the song. I mean, just all of this. And the whole time, as we are going through the ceremony, I'm saying to myself, okay, what is it time to do next? What are we supposed to do next? 
when it comes time for you to fall on your face before God, you are not going to have a script. You're not going to have to be told, now is the time to bow before him in reverence. And just know this, there is a day coming, for it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. When you stand before God and you see him, you are not going to have to be told, now I bow before him in reverence. Manoah and his wife, when they realized that that man that they were talking to was God and that he was taken up, they did what came naturally, and that was to fall on their faces. Verses 21 and 22. Now the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Well, he's actually quoting scripture here. He's remembering, even as Gideon did, what God said to Moses in Exodus 33, 20. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. However, what he has not factored in here is the sacrifice. But he does understand here that this is God in the flesh, and he is afraid that he is going to die. Verse 23, his wife uh, is better at logic than he is, and here's where the gospel is clearest in the entire passage. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, if it was his intention to destroy us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Here's her point. I don't think he's going to kill us. And here's why I don't think he's going to kill us. It makes no sense that we would offer a sacrifice which would be accepted and then for him to turn around and kill us. Friends, I want to tell you, it makes no sense whatsoever that God would send his son Jesus to go to the cross for you, that he would accept that sacrifice. And we know that he accepted that sacrifice because he raised Jesus from the dead. And tell us that if we put our trust in Jesus, and if we are in Jesus, then for God to turn around and damn us. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever that there would be a sacrifice on our behalf which would be accepted by him, and then for him to turn around and destroy us. It's just totally incoherent. And then she says, and also, if you think about it, Apart from the religious ceremony, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that he would come to us and tell us that we are going to have a son and then kill us before the son could ever be born. That doesn't make any sense to me. And she is right. And she is absolutely right. Her reasoning is perfect. Verses 24 and 25. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Uh, that name Samson is associated with the strength of the sun, that is the S-U-N in the sky. She called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him at Mahanadan, uh, between Zorah and Eshtheol. Okay, so what is going on here when it says he grew? We, I mean, you, you know that when we get to the rest of the story of Samson, he's a really strong guy. It doesn't mean that he was like in the gym all the time, pumping iron so that he could eventually do all the things that he did. I, I think, here's my theory, I think if you looked at Samson, I don't think that he would look in any way abnormal. I don't think that he would be pumped up at all, because all of his strength was from the Lord. It, it was a supernatural strength which he had from the Lord. So when it says he grew, I think it just means that he grew up. 
And the stirring which he received from the Spirit in verse 25, I think it means that there is a restlessness in him, perhaps a restlessness where he feels compelled to deliver the people of God and, and, and to defeat the Philistines. This place where he was, Mahanadan, the, the, it, 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 it's telling you that he wasn't even living in one of the cities and they were small towns to begin with, but he's sort of living in like this refugee camp, maybe a military camp. He's not domesticated. Uh, He's being raised to be a fighter. I think that that is what is saying here. And, and so you have the story of the pronouncement of Samson and his birth. Now, I read many commentaries on this chapter, and all of them I found to be helpful. But you know what? None of these commentaries attempted to pinpoint the main point of the passage. And even now, as I'm standing in front of you today, I I am not certain that I understand the main point of the passage. But I think I can move us in that direction, even if I can't get us there. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at this chapter and we're going to extract several repeated themes. I have four of them. And maybe if we can extract these four repeated themes from the chapter, we can move in the direction of ascertaining the main point. Uh, Here they are. Number one, I want you to note what they did understand. Uh, In other words... These people understood some of what was going on. Now, most commentaries that I read, they paint Manoah as a very dull man who was very slow to learn. In fact, one commentator, which will go unnamed, referred to him as her blockhead husband. I think that is unfair. First reason I say that is because how was he to know that it was the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord might have had a striking appearance, but he looks like a man. And on other occasions, when the angel of the Lord appears to people in the Old Testament, they think that they are talking to a fellow human being. Abraham, Lot, Joshua, Gideon, that they all thought they were talking to regular people. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, says that you are to show hospitality because some people have entertained angels unawares, that is, without knowing it. So Manoah didn't have uh, anything wrong with him because he didn't know that he was talking to God. Uh, There are some things that he understood and that he ascertained correctly. Let me give you 10 examples of what he did know. I will move quickly. Number one, As soon as he got the initial report from his wife, he prayed, verse 8. Number two, he humbly wants to know how to raise the boy, also in verse 8. Number three, God listened to his prayer, so he must have been praying in line with God's will, verse 9. Number four, he was a man of faith. He says, when the boy is born, not if the boy is born. He doesn't have any doubts. Number five, he is hospitable and kind. Verse 15, he wants to cook this guy a meal. Number six, he wants to honor the prophet by having his name be remembered. Verse 17. And number seven, he prepares, out of obedience, he prepares a burnt offering, a sacrifice, and, and, and he was exercising correct worship. Verse 19, number eight, both he and his wife show holy reverence in verse 20 by falling on their faces. Number nine, his wife correctly reasons that God does not want to kill them. Verse 23, and number 10, from verse 24, it seems like they did the very best that they could do to be good parents. So these are not perfect people, but generally speaking, they know the scriptures, they pray, they worship, They respect the things of God, and that was very rare in those days because in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This couple was the exception. A lot of ink shows that they understood a lot and that they lived godly lives. They actually end up being much better people than their son turned out to be. Observation number two, a repetitive theme in the chapter 
is I want us to notice what they did not understand. There were some things that they didn't get. First of all, as I said earlier, Mrs. Manoah does not give her husband a full report of everything that the angel told her. I think it would have been important for her husband to know that the son that was being born would be used to save Israel from the Philistines. That's important, but he never learned that. And it was her failure to tell the whole story which may have contributed to his partial confusion. Every once in a while, people will come to the elders and they'll say, we really need some advice, we really need some help. And so we will sit, we will listen, and they will tell us the story, and we will give them really bad advice. And the reason why we are giving them bad advice is because we are counseling them based upon what they have told us. They don't tell us the full story, and therefore we cannot give good advice if we don't even know what we are speaking to. She doesn't give them the full story. Number two, Neither one of them knew who they were talking to. Verse 16, Manoah did not know that he was talking to the Lord. No fault of his own, but he, he, he doesn't know who he's talking to. Number three, he keeps asking questions which clearly miss the mark of the visit. What's the kid going to grow up to be? Do you want something to eat? What is your name? None of those questions are bad questions, but each one of them Jesus doesn't bother to answer because that missed the point of the visit, which Manoah missed as well. And then number four, perhaps the main thing that he didn't understand is he thought God wanted to kill him, verse 22. And thankfully his wife was more scriptural and more logical, but it shows that he doesn't know the heart of God. Not only is he not logical, he doesn't know the heart of God. So observation number one, things that they did understand. Observation number two, things that they did not understand, which brings us to observation number three. Notice, perhaps most importantly, what Jesus does not reveal, the things that Jesus does not tell them. Without question, Jesus is intentionally being very evasive and gives very little explanation. Here's five examples of that. First of all, notice that he appears twice in a row to Mrs. Manoah without Manoah being there. And in that culture, if you wanted to confirm a credible message, you would go to the man. But twice he appears to the woman only. Uh, that is not to say that women cannot receive information and convey it accurately. It's just saying if you want, if you want a credible uh, uh, story to be believed, it, it have, would have to be established through the head of the household. Twice he appears to the woman, the woman alone. Number two, something that Jesus does not reveal, and that is what will be the manner of the child's life? In verse 12, Jesus' answer is silence. Number three, in verse 16, I will not eat your food. Number four, verse 18, I will not tell you my name. And number five, verse 21, the angel appeared no more. They're getting no more information. Jesus is clearly, clearly being unclear. He gives them limited information in a very brief visit. So are you following these patterns so far? Things they do understand, things they don't understand, and the lack of information that Jesus intentionally does not give to them or gives to them. Which brings us to observation number four. This is the wackiest of the points. Notice what Jesus does reveal. This is odd to me. Three things. Number one, you're going to have a son. Number two, he's going to start to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And number three, this is the one that I want to accentuate. What keeps coming up is that the woman is not supposed to drink any wine, and her son is never supposed to drink any wine. And then when she goes to tell her husband, she again says, I'm not supposed to drink anything fermented. And then when Manoah asked, 
what is the mission for the boy's life? The Lord says to her, make sure that your wife, between now and the time that the baby is born, is ceremonially clean and that she doesn't drink any wine and that the boy doesn't do so either and that he keep the other aspects of the Nazarite vow. How disappointed would you be if you asked Jesus, what am I supposed to do? And he says, stay away from the liquor cabinet. That's it. That's, that's all you need to know right now. I see in this the mind of God and the heart of God not speaking to the subject of teetotaling or prohibition. That, 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 that's not what it is teaching at all in any way whatsoever. Jesus made wine. Jesus drank wine. Jesus provided wine for others. And, and it wasn't grape juice. It was actually alcoholic. It, 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 it is not speaking to a, a teetotaling society. But what it is saying, pointing to the Nazarite vow, is that in order to be a Nazarite, you have to be separate. You have to be different. You need to be holy. You need to be separated from that which is common. You need to be radically committed to this. And for the boy, he needs to be permanently committed to this. In other words, what God emphasizes are not the details of what's going to happen when the boy grows up, but for the now, here's what you need to know. You need to be committed to holiness. Do you not find it interesting that he doesn't give them any other information? You don't need to know how to raise the boy. You don't need to know what his mission will be. You don't need to know my name. You don't need to eat a meal with me. You don't need to see me ever again. But what you do need to know is that you and the boy need to have a radical commitment to holiness. Now, if I have read these four points properly, and there, there are these repetitive patterns, then... I think we can move forward and draw some conclusions. And so I will leave you today before you go home with three practical truths to consider. Number one is the longest. But I think it is something we all need to know, and that is that God totally controls the amount of information that we receive. God is the one who totally controls the amount of information that we receive. We want additional information. We want to know the future. We want to know what God's will is for our lives. We want to know what is going to become of us and our children. We want to know why things happen. We want to know if we're going to have children, and we want to know if we're going to have children are those children going to be healthy? We want to know, is our life going to be safe and secure? We want to know. We are curious. And when people do not have information, they tend to say to God, uh, all right, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? I don't understand. And, and I don't think that their tone is reverent Lord, would you please reveal to me what you are doing and what you're up to? It's more like this. God, I have a right to know. So let's you and me sit down and you can explain yourself. I'm demanding an answer. I need an explanation. God, let me give you some advice. You need to inform me. Your actions, God, are confusing to me. Would you please clarify them? If I didn't know you better, I would think that you were maybe trying to hurt me rather than help me. So just so that I'll understand, God, I demand an answer from you. God says to Job, shut up. Sit down. Listen to me. Tell me. Where were you when I hung the stars? Surely you know, Job. I don't have to give you an answer. 
I do what I do because that is what I want to do, and what I do is best. Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. His ways are past finding it out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Implied answer, nobody. Or who has been his counselor? Nobody. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Nobody. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You go to God and you start demanding answers. That is a very unhealthy approach to God. It is a very dangerous way to approach the Almighty. And it is altogether wrong. Why? Because he is the potter and we are the clay, and we don't call him into question. We receive the information that we have because he is pleased to grant that and nothing more. And sometimes our curiosity may not be satisfied. The pathology report comes back. It is malignant. Why? Why? God, could you just tell me why? Sometimes God's answer is silence. God is not here to satisfy our curiosity. He is the one who controls how much information we receive. Sometimes he's vague. Sometimes he gives us a lot of information. And sometimes he says nothing at all. So, everything between you and God is on a need-to-know basis. And in every instance, he is in charge of how much information we will receive. He doesn't have to tell us everything. In fact, he doesn't have to tell us anything. Here's an illustration. This is not a good illustration. It's slightly helpful, but, but it, it's not apples to apples. But but maybe you will understand it a little bit if I put it this way. Let's say that there's somewhere where you have to take your child. And let's say that in taking your child there, there's a lot of sensitive issues. Things are potentially complicated relationally, practically, financially, or with reference to, to safety. And, and just so, so you understand exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it, but... your child does not understand. And you know that they don't need to understand. For them to understand this would not only complicate things or maybe jeopardize things, but it might be not only unnecessary, but it might hurt the child. So in wisdom, you just take the child, but you do not explain why you're doing what you're doing. They might not have the capacity to understand it. Then they start to badger Where are we going? What are we doing? I don't understand. I don't want to go there. And in your mind, you know that it is both unnecessary for you to tell them and it is best that you do not tell them. And what you have to do is you have to say to your child either nothing at all or you simply have to say to them, everything's going to be all right, just trust me but you can't get into it. For even to get into it is going to hurt the child. I mean, how how would you feel if you were Manoah and you said, okay, what's the child's situation going to be? And and Jesus doesn't tell him, and Manoah pushes him, and then God says, all right, I'll tell you. Your son is going to have a very healthy appetite for prostitutes. And... He is, he is going to shame you and your family many times. And he's going to make Israel a reproach. And he is going to be apprehended and they're going to gouge out his eyes. And he's going to be put at a treadmill like an animal. And he's going to die underneath a pile of rubble. Now, do you feel better? Sometimes God is going to give little information. 
And what we need to do when we receive little information is to trust in his power and his love and his plan and his wisdom. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. Second half of the verse says, you have a Bible, you should read it. Everything in the Bible is what God wants you to know. First half of the verse says, there's some things that you're not going to know. God doesn't answer all of your questions and... He doesn't have to. God tells us, however, what we need to know. You say, well, what is God's will for my life? Uh, i just give you one real quick. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let's just start with that. You get that one, then we can move on. But that clearly is the will of God for your life. Let's move on to point number two, or truth number two. And that is that God frequently tells us very little. He tells us very little. Uh, Why he does this, we know that it is for his good, but... He often tells us very little, and we don't understand what is going on. But we need to trust and believe that he causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him, and that he actually does have a plan in mind, and we don't have to know what it is. So our missions committee um, was speaking this week, getting information on one of our missionaries in China, We cannot tell you his name. We cannot tell you the name of his church. For if we did so, we might jeopardize his safety. But we know someone who knows him and said, how are things going with him? And the report came back. Things with him are going very well. His church is going well. He has planted two churches. He no longer needs our money. He is flourishing. On top of that, something very wonderful happened to him. He got arrested. He got arrested for being a Christian and being a pastor. Now, backstory, no pun intended, he had a very bad back, uh, a back pain which was debilitating for him. And so here he is, underground church, doing the best he can to serve the Lord, walking around in debilitating pain, and what happens? He gets arrested. He's in jail and his back gets better. He leaves jail, and he says to the prison, hey, could you please give me the the name of that mattress I've been sleeping on in here? (laughs) He buys that mattress, and now his back is just fine. (laughs) Who would know when he goes into the jail why he's going into the jail? We're going to receive very little information up front. We just need to trust him that he is working all things together for good. And listen, there's a million moving parts. You're not going to be able to comprehend it. You're going to get very little information, but you are going to get the information that you need. And then the third truth that I want to send you home with, this is the most important and this is the most beautiful of the truths, and that is this. Everything that God does, he does because he loves us. Yes, he's doing it for his glory, but how is his glory best seen? His glory is best seen in him showing his love to us. Miss Manoah gets it right. Makes no sense that his goal would be to kill us. We think, because we are bad, and we are bad, amen, Yes, we are bad. We think that he has a disposition toward us that he is out to get us. Let me tell you, if he was out to get you, he would have gotten you already. And again, I repeat that the gospel is of first importance. There has been a sacrifice on your behalf offered at Mount Calvary, which was accepted by God, and that is proof that he loves you. And you need to, even as I said last week, begin to understand and know and believe and embrace and even more importantly, feel the love of God. 
There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3, 17. And Romans 8, 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, because of the gospel, every time you get this thought that Manoah has, God is out to get me, you need to rebuke that thought because it is not coming from the heart of God. He is for you. And he does what he does because he loves you. Miscarriage, cancer, automobile accident, getting fired from your job, depression, it's all part of his plan. You say, I don't understand. I say, I don't understand either. And I say, we on this side will never understand. But we don't have to. Because we know the one who does understand. And he is doing what is right. So, he's not out to get you. He loves you in Christ. Be content with the information you have. Read your Bible. He wants you to know that. Trust him that even though he has not told you most of what he is doing, he still knows what he is doing. And what he is doing, he is doing because he loves you. And he has proven that he loves you because he sent Jesus to die for your sins. And in that, brothers and sisters, I hope that you will learn to rest. Because as I look out at you this morning, I see some hurting people. I know some of you, and I know some of the ways that you are hurting. And there's some of you that are hurting, and you have never revealed this to me, and you've never revealed it to anybody else in this room. I know some of you are going through circumstances where there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of potential heartbreak. And I know that some of you are perhaps weak in your faith, and you're thinking, God, what are you doing? I just want to stand in front of you today and say, he knows what he's doing, and he loves you. He loves you a lot. He's going to make things right. He loves you, and he knows what he's doing. Father in heaven, Lord, help us to trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.